Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's Insight Assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, this is Now and Then. I'm Heather Cox Richardson. And I'm Joanne Freeman. Before I talk about what we're going to talk about today, one brief word, and that is they are drilling outside my apartment. And so the drilling will be a major character potentially of our episode today. Just wanted you to know, not your ears. Wait, wait, Joanne, are you you saying we're going to drill down into a topic? (laughs) Indeed, (laughs) Heather. Oh man, we're we're already in such trouble. We are, we're in deep trouble. But we're going to be in deep trouble about something specific. And that is, we're going to be talking about congressional committees. Now, obviously, one of the reasons why we're talking about this has to do with the fact that they've been in the news recently with a new Congress, with a new speaker, Kevin McCarthy, and with now people being put on committees and various objections being raised. And then most recently, Representative Ilhan Omar, the Democrat from Minnesota, was removed from the House Foreign Affairs Committee in a party line vote, ostensibly because of past remarks that she made, which were deemed anti-Semitic. What we want to talk about today is what committees actually do, why they're important, how that has changed over time, and what's going on in those committees that actually shapes our process of governance. Part of what we'll talk about early on is the 19th century, in which not only was there a lot going on in these committees, but they were secret. They were private and kept away from the press. So basically, this is part of our political process that Although we think about membership, we don't necessarily think about its role in actual governance very much. And I love this topic because it's one of those things that shows up in the news all the time. Who's on what committee? And the committee did this and the committee did that. And nobody really talks about how incredibly important those committees are and who sits on those committees. And my great example of that was that if you actually watch the Nixon-Kennedy debates, a lot of those debates are about what committees they sit on. And nowadays, you can't imagine presidential contenders saying, well, you know, you were only on the subcommittee of the blah, blah, blah. And it was such a big deal then because people understood how Congress worked. And The ways that committees have played into our political process, at least over the last six years, and certainly before that, is really important to the way things have happened. The fact that Representative Omar has been voted off the Foreign Affairs Committee is a very big deal because of the committee she was voted off of, and we'll talk about the different kinds of committees. But it's also worth pointing out that Speaker McCarthy does have power to decide who is on a select committee, which means that he was able to toss off of the House Intelligence Committee two of the people who have been very active on it and and have built up a great deal of knowledge over time about it, including Adam Schiff, a Democrat from California, who chaired the committee and has been on the committee for a very long time, and crucially, was one of the leaders of using that committee to investigate the connections between the Trump campaign and Russia. And many people see this as an attempt to protect Donald Trump. 
because the Intelligence Committee under the Trump years did a lot of things that harked back to some of its earlier days in terms of politicization. But that control over who sits on committees is ultimately a form of control over what actually gets done and how it gets done. So a lot of the sausage making on committees is enormously important, and it's really important to understand how it's done, why it's done, and how it can be used or misused. And I also will say, um, I'll point listeners back to an episode we did in the past. We did actually do a past episode on speakers of the House, in which we didn't necessarily focus on committees, but that will reinforce some of what it is that we're talking about here. Because in part, when we talk about a powerful speaker, at least, we are talking about speakers who know how to, to move those little levers in such a way that they create consensus and they move the ball forward by using the rules of the House and the committees of the House. And when we talk about weaker speakers which would be the great name for a rock band, by the way. We're often talking about people who don't use those things very well. And of course, in the present with McCarthy's removal of Schiff and Swalwell from the Intelligence Committee, but also getting the House to vote against Omar, which took a lot of political oxygen, as somebody said, and created yet more problems for the Speaker, might not have been worth the power he invested in it. You know, one of the other things that I guess we have to mention is that while he was busy taking Adam Schiff off of the Intelligence Committee in the House, Speaker McCarthy also assigned Representative George Sandoz from New York to committees. He has recused himself from serving on committees while there is still an investigation into him. But if you've used it as a grandstanding moment, it's only natural that somebody's going to say, wait a minute, you're taking... Adam Schiff off intelligence, and you're putting George Sandoz on science, space, and technology and on the Small Business Committee, which, again, are not necessarily the most important committees like Ways and Means is, and yet they do a lot of important work. They do the work, as we're going to talk about in just a moment. That's where a lot of the work happens is off the floor in these committees. So we might giggle at some of the committees that we could name that sound like as though they're trivial but if there's a committee, there's a reason for that committee, and it can have an impact and often does. And we'll talk now about the different kinds of committees, but think about it. They are literally that. They are committees. So if you spend your congressional time on the Agriculture Committee, which is one of my favorite ones, okay, we wait, all have wait, favorites. Wait, wait. <laughs> you have a favorite committee. <laughs> Actually, yes, I have favorite committees. And it is one of the things that used to make me tear my hair out is that while you could get a record of what happened in Congress, committee deliberations were secret. And every time they closed those doors, I would be like, no, no, I need to know what you're going to be talking about because this is where it really is going to happen. And you could piece it together from the newspapers because people would leak, but you didn't have a record of what happened in committee. So there's three different kinds. There are standing committees which are permanent committees, and the members of standing committees are formally selected by the whole House or the whole Senate. But the appointments are almost always made by their respective parties in the 19th century, for at least part of it, sometimes by the speakers. Most standing committees have a set number of members from each party and are created by congressional resolutions, and they tend to select legislative proposals to be debated by Congress. They provide oversight for agencies that fall within their jurisdiction and usually recommend funding levels for programs that fall within their purview. So the Agriculture Committee, for example. Or Foreign Affairs. Yeah, but I'm talking about the important ones. Oh, silly me. <laughs> that was a joke, everybody. Foreign Affairs was actually the most important Ways and means, too, but yes. Foreign Affairs Committee was the most important Senate committee in the 19th century, and ways and means in the House. So, And agriculture was important, but I was just being a jerk. Okay, so there's standing committees, and then? Then there are select committees whose members are usually appointed by the Speaker of the House or the Senate Majority Leader. Most of them are temporary or have been temporary. There are some permanent select committees, including, for example, the House and Senate intelligence committees. 
That's always a surprise to people is that the intelligence committees are select committees. They're not standing committees, although they don't disappear. But that means who is on them is appointed differently. And that's why McCarthy could toss off Swalwell and Schiff, which he very well likely could not have done if those had been a standing committee. So that's kind of a weird not on distinction. His own. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of a weird distinction is that even though it always exists, it is not technically a standing committee. It's a select committee, and the speaker gets to decide who's on it. And then finally, the third kind of committee is a joint committee. And logically enough, given that name, joint committees include members of both the House and the Senate. They tend to be focused on bureaucratic or administrative matters. And I love joint committees because, I mean, everyone thinks about the Joint Committee on Reconstruction, which is the one that— <laughs> Maybe does- not everybody. <laughs> <laughs> This is a total Heather and Joanne nerd episode. <laughs> All right. Well, they do things that come up with the 14th Amendment. But the reason the joint committees are especially interesting is because they usually operate when the House and the Senate disagree about something. So if you're trying to figure out who stands where on an issue, the House will have passed something that says, you know, we're going to do A, and the Senate will say, no freaking chance we're going to do A, we're going to do H. And it's rarely Z. They're both together, but they're disagreeing about a lot of stuff. So, for example, one of the important things that they fight about a lot is the percentage of somebody's income that should be in an income tax. So by watching what the joint committee does, it's bureaucratic, but it's bureaucratic with a really big purpose. The whole rise of the committee system is fascinating, but it is worth pointing out that by the end of the 19th century, with the rise of committees— Woodrow Wilson, who is going to be president and who is very concerned in the time he writes a book called Congressional Government about how committees have become too powerful. He says, I know not how better to describe our form of government in a single phrase than by calling it a government by the chairman of the standing committees of Congress. And that's actually a really important observation because while people tend even still to focus on what the Congress does, the whole point is that nothing gets to the Congress until it has been through the committees. Quite literally, you introduce something and the House sends it to a committee and it can get just bottling stuff up in committees so it never gets out, makes a huge difference to what actually goes in front of the Congress. And Wilson actually said a statement about this very thing, which ends up being in any book that you read that talks about the history or the working of Congress. He says, Congress in session is Congress on public exhibition, whilst Congress in its committee rooms is Congress at work. So I've seen that only several hundred times in working on Congress over the last 17 years. So let's walk through how they're created, because they're obviously not in the Constitution, and they become such a hugely important part of our system. Where do they come from? The founders weren't pontificating about committees when they were talking about creating the Constitution. They begin to be created when Congress is a working institution. Logically enough, one of the first committees is rules. When you look at Congress and what it's doing in these early years, a lot of what it's doing, it's legislating, it's doing very important work. It's also trying to figure out how the heck it's supposed to run. And that changes dramatically over the course of its history. When you look at what some of the members of the early Congress said, for example, Representative Fisher Ames, one of my favorite congressmen. Now we're we're totally going to be nerding out for the entire episode here. Fisher Ames was known for being able to make people cry when he gave addresses. Cry because he humiliated them or because they were emotionally? No, because they were emotionally. This is the age of crying men. Someone would say something moving and then suddenly the room was sobbing. And Fisher Ames was a master of the sobbing Congress. Yeah, he, he was renowned for this. Wait, wait, wait. Even while your guys are running around being macho, they turn around and start crying over No, uh, the crying is early, and my macho dudes are a couple decades later. Huh. They're no longer sobbing in 1830. In July of 1789, he writes to a friend and talks about why he'd rather work in committees than in the full house. He says, a select committee would soon correct little improprieties. Our great committee, meaning the house— is too unwieldy for this operation. A great clumsy machine is applied to the slightest and most delicate operations, the hoof of an elephant to the strokes of mezzo tinto. 
Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. For more Cafe History content, check out Time Machine, a weekly column by our editorial producer, David Kurlander, inspired by each Now and Then episode. You can receive the Time Machine articles through the free Cafe Brief email. Sign up at cafe.com slash brief. So one of the interesting questions about committees, and this takes a totally different turn as we move ahead in time. But initially, there is some resistance to the ideas of committees because they seem to be moving things into private. They seem to be pulling things away from the whole. There seem to be places where sneaky things can happen. And so there are some people that are very zealous about Heather's laughing. And who might those people be? It's the Jeffersonian Republicans. <laughs> it's, but the fact that it's Virginia who says, no, you, we don't want committees. We want to make sure we have our finger in every single little pie is perfect. I mean, it just tells you so much about the whole makeup of the early government. Once again, you're making me defend Jefferson and the Jeffersonian Republicans. But part of it is also they are the party that is against centralized power. They are the party that is uncomfortable with a strong national government. So that's not going to make them big fans of this either. Their big concern is that you're going to lose control of the government to little cabals. And if you have committee meetings, which quite frankly is exactly what happens in the late 19th century. So they're not entirely off. But I just love that you've got Ames there like, we need committees. And the Virginians being like, not over our dead bodies. Well, and Ames is the guy who says Virginia is stiff and touchy against any change of the committee of the whole, meaning Congress as a whole. The Virginians are for watching and checking power. They see evils in embryo, are terrified with possibilities, and are eager to establish rights and to explain principles to such a degree that you would think them enthusiasts and triflers. So committees are suspect to some. You know, Ames thinks they'd be more effective, according to him, you know, Virginians in particular, don't know what's going on in those committee rooms. And the fact of the matter is, generally speaking, when you look at the first half of the 19th century and look at committees to see what's going on, the fact of the matter is they were closed to the press. They were places where things could happen. And this really gets into piecing things together territory. There's someone in the 19th century who calls them committee rooms, quote, the black holes of the Capitol because you never know what's going on there. Which has two sides, right? On the one hand, you can make things happen in there that make people at the time and historians later on going, what just happened? Who did what? How will we ever find out? And that's when you're scouring the newspapers trying to figure out if there's been a leak. 
And on the other hand, it means that people can cut deals and they can negotiate and they can maybe say things in anger or in creativity that they would never want to see in the press. Precisely. They can do a lot of things. It gives them a lot of room. Henry Wise of Virginia, who is my most frequent fighter in the work that I've done, he mentions on the floor of the House recent committee meeting that he was at in which a member of the committee threatened to beat whoever disagreed with him in the room. And someone on the floor says to uh, Wise, you're exposing the secrets of the prison house before the world. (laughs) (laughs) Don't talk about what happens in committee rooms. So they were useful because they were private and they were dangerous because they were private. And the most dangerous committees of all were select committees because they were seemingly temporary, which means people could misbehave in all kinds of ways. So again, if you're thinking about the working of government, these places were important because they were secret, because they were private, and you could do handy, useful things there, and you could do not so useful and handy things there. Nefarious is the word you're looking for. That is indeed the word I'm looking for. But again, to think a little bit about how they act and why they remain so important is that just as you say, because the press is not supposed to be there, although there will be leaks to the press from committees always, because they're not supposed to be there, they tend to focus on the public speeches, on the public face. You know, we've talked now several times about piecing things together from the 19th century. Think about the fact that with databases all these years later, sometimes it's still impossible to tell what was happening in those committees. So they were private and the press was kept out. And other than people like Henry Wise leaking things on the floor or people in private correspondence, there was some degree of secrecy maintained because there were things there that actually literally nobody wanted other people to know about. So now what about the Senate? Because we talked about the House committees. The Senate is way smaller, right? So they must be later coming up with committees, right? So indeed, the Senate, because it's smaller in the ways that we've been talking about, they often were using select committees until 1816. They were slower to develop standing committees because they didn't necessarily need them. And one of the interesting things generally about Congress is that sometimes one house will see what's going on in the other and then copy it. And we'll see that a little bit today in different committees. But this is a case in which the Senate didn't need them and then decided it did, and it was already going on in the other house. The fact that the Senate is smaller really matters. It matters for a bunch of things. One of the reasons we still have the filibuster, of course, because they're operating on committees, basically the most powerful senators did everything. Is that right? The most powerful senators certainly had a huge influence, partly because it was a smaller body, and thus it was easier to have a big personal influence there. At the time, when you had standing committees, it dramatically changed the way that the Senate worked. And now, instead of the full Senate being able to reach agreement on legislation and then creating a select committee to perfect it, bills introduced to the Senate were immediately sent off to a standing committee for first consideration. And so the committees in the Senate are taking the lead in determining what the Senate was going to do. And developing expertise. You know, if you sat on a Senate for a really long time, and that was, you know, when we talked about Wilbur Mills and the troubles he got himself into and how he was Mr. Ways and Means, I'm sorry, he was in the House, of course, but the fact that he was really the Ways and Means Committee, so when he got into personal trouble, it dramatically changed the legislation that could get through Congress, was really an indication, I think, of how incredibly important the expertise that these people develop on these committees is so central to the way they do business. But here's a point underlying everything. Off the cuff, you might think that we're just talking about institutions, but in a way, the message that we keep coming back to again and again and again is that committees show the personal dimension, the personal dynamics, the ways in which people can actually have a great influence. So it's a good reminder that the infrastructure of Congress, the institutional components of it, aren't necessarily a sign that it runs in some kind of a mechanized way. They're ways for people to work together, but the people themselves The dynamic of both houses of Congress centers around people and often powerful people. And we certainly see that now, but that's always been the case. The example that we're going to use of the way committees make a huge difference to the country is the way that committees operated under Speaker of the House, Thomas B. Reed of Maine in the late 19th century. And we've talked about him before as a powerful speaker and the things he did. But what we wanted to talk about today was that 
Reed, as Speaker, used the rules of the House always to benefit his own party. He was a Republican, and they were trying desperately in this period to protect the tariff. That is sort of a wall of essentially taxes on foreign products. And the late 19th century industrialists loved them because it permitted them to collude to raise prices. So this becomes the hot issue of the late 19th century. And he really uses everything he possibly can to make sure that even though the American people have started to turn against tariffs, that the Republican Party can continue to protect them. And one of the ways he does that is he stacks the House Committee on Ways and Means. And the Committee on Ways and Means is, um, they change the name slightly in the 20th century. And every time I see people calling it the Ways and Means Committee, it kills me because it was the House Committee on Ways and Means. Okay, I got that <laughs> off my system. It was the House Committee on Ways and Means. And he stacked that committee with pro-business Republicans. Because a lot of Western Republicans were like, eh, we're not so keen on this tariff anymore either. And he did that by, for example, it's a 13-member committee, and he puts two people from New York on it and one person for the entire South, which hates tariffs. Then at the head of it, he puts William McKinley. And William McKinley is from Ohio. He's a staunchly pro-tariff guy. And he also interprets the rules in such a way that it means that because McKinley's at the head of the Ways and Means Committee, he's also going to have a seat on rules, on the Rules Committee. So William McKinley, who's totally this party, pro-business party boss kind of guy, is not only the chair of the Ways and Means Committee, he's also on the Rules Committee. So obviously he's going to change the rules of the House in order to get through what he wants on Ways and Means. And even when this happened, people at the time are like, the House is doing business with no rules at all because basically McKinley and the Speaker of the House, Reed, are calling all the shots. And they continue to use those two things, McKinley in both of those roles, to get what the Republican Party wants. There's a reason why Reed was called Czar Reed, right? Because he really had power and was wielding it as Speaker. So McKinley who people have very mixed feelings about, even at the time. There's some great quotes about him. Somebody writes to him in early 1890 when the Republicans have promised to reform the tariff, but they're actually going to raise the tariff really significantly in October of that year. A friend of his writes to McKinley, and he says, you know, I've heard a rumor that you're going to give up your house on ways and means in order to be chair of the Judiciary Committee. Now, the Judiciary Committee is another enormously important committee because it's in charge, obviously, of laws and the enforcement of laws. And Judiciary is one of the places in the 19th, and I would actually argue through the 20th and maybe even to the present, where political careers were made or broken. And McKinley wrote back and he said, why on earth would I give up ways and means for judiciary? He says, a place on ways and means is of far more interest to my district and has more to do with its material interest than any other committee. And he talks about his district in Ohio, but what he's really doing is in that seat at the chair of Ways and Means with his other seat on rules, he can do exactly what the big business Republicans want. First of all, he's going to be able to push through in 1890 a new tariff that business loves and everybody else hates. So the Republicans are going to get shellacked in the 1890 election. But it's also going to make him absolutely the face of big business protection, the Republican Party. And that is quite literally going to be his stepping stone to the presidency. Because think about what we've been saying all along. If the committees are where the work is taking place and you are a person with great power over the committees, regardless of what you're doing on the floor, you're going to be a person with a great deal of influence. And as you just suggested, that is one way to garner political power, and potentially elective power. I will point out that what becomes known in 1890 as the McKinley Tariff and what ends up being so incredibly unpopular among the Democrats and the alliance members that are going to become populists, that they throw the Republicans out of power in 1890 and lead to the election of Grover Cleveland in 1892, that by becoming, as the chair of the House Ways and Means Committee, the face of a certain interpretation of the way government should behave, the kind of legislation it should pass. There are things I don't like to talk about in public, 
But there is no doubt that McKinley's end at the end of a pistol by Leon Chalgos is directly related to the work he did with the McKinley tariff and the idea that he was pushing through a certain vision of government that was generally unpopular and that he was really the face of that. And when Chalgos assassinates him, he does so in the belief that people like McKinley must be stopped. And again, that it gets all tangled up at the time with the fears of anarchists around the world. And you usually see people saying, oh, well, Chalgos was an anarchist. That's debatable. What is not debatable is Chalgos's position on so many of the currents of the day, which was real fear that the government and its committees had been taken over by people like McKinley. So this is one of those cases where it was his committee work that made the man and perhaps also broke the man. I will also add, totally peripheral, but it's been in my head through the entire Cholgosh part of this. If you are not out there in listening land familiar with Stephen Sondheim's musical Assassins, it's pretty amazing. And there's a whole song about Cholgosh, Cholgosh, working man. And he talks about, in the song, working his way to the head of the line in the USA, right? That's what you can do in the USA. You can actually push your way up to the head of the line and it won't necessarily be these big men who always have big deals of power. So I highly recommend that. And I love the song, but I also love the musical because of the way in which it weaves very specific moments in history into a musical. Do you know, I haven't seen that and I would love to because I loved Sarah Vowell's Assassination Vacation. And if it ever comes to New York, you and I definitely should go. For sure. I've seen it twice here in New York, but if it comes back, you will be the person I cope see it with. <laughs> Promise. Promise. <laughs> All right. So if that's an example of the ways in which, no pun intended, a committee assignment can affect the country and perhaps a person as well, more recently... One of the things that you can see by looking at committees in their formation is how the Congress has changed and how the country has changed. So in the 19th century, as I say, Senate foreign affairs was enormously important. Judiciary, when they are introducing and passing and not passing a lot of amendments to the Constitution, is incredibly important. Ways and means is always important because that's where the money legislation comes from. But in the 20th century, there's a new move to make Congress people accountable to the people. And that's a really interesting moment. And it is, as we've talked about here before, if you're talking about functional democratic government, accountability is at the top of the list. Is you it, Joanne? People, you never talk about that. I know. I never talk about accountability. She snickered. If you're going to give people power, then they are accountable for that power because you have given it to them. And so an ethics committee, creating ethics committees that are injecting this into the government, it is a really interesting moment. And it's a gesture that in part has meaning, regardless of what happens in the committees, but the fact that these committees are created midway into the 20th century, it's a sign about the times. And it's also a sign about open recognition of the fact that this needs to be addressed. And there is also, I think, a recognition that Congress can't be an old boys club anymore. And that really shows in the creation of the Senate Ethics Committee, which was created in response to the secretary of the majority leader, a man named Bobby Baker. He was secretary to the Senate majority leader in the 1950s and early 1960s, including during Lyndon Johnson's tenure. And in late 1963, think of everything going on in 1963, what the Senate Rules Committee begins to investigate is Baker's financial dealings. Now, he's the secretary to the majority leader, who's, of course, trying to whip up votes, right? And they accuse Baker of bribery and of arranging sexual favors for legislators in exchange for their votes, he had apparently run a private members group called the Quorum Club from the Carroll Arms Hotel, which is near to the Senate office building. And this was had gone on, you know, for a while. And certainly the stories of what happened in Congress had been out there for 
probably since the beginning, certainly since the 19th century, the stories of, you know, the wheeling and dealing that went on to get votes in Congress and that not all of it was above board. But by 63, using sexual favors to get votes was the sort of thing that was not going to fly any longer. So in 64, the Senate Rules Committee returns a rather scathing report on Baker, and it advocates for a good number of reforms, including the creation of an internal code of ethics, <laughs> a pay raise, thank you very much, mixed right in there, and the creation of a permanent and bipartisan Senate Select Committee on Standards and Conduct. Liberal Republican Kentucky Senator John Sherman Cooper led the quest to create the committee, and he emphasized the fact that the committee was not supposed to be just a punitive body, but it was also going to be oriented towards deciding which transgressions warranted further investigation and attention. So he actually said one of the greatest duties of such a committee would be to have the judgment to know what it should investigate and what it should not. So it is having an important defining function as well as a symbolic function and a legislative function. Well, and I love one of the first cases it takes on because it says so much about that moment and about this changing idea of, well, we're the congressman. We can do whatever we think is appropriate. Is that your Congress voice? It's my Congress <laughs> voice. That's why I've never been elected. The first thing they take on concerns Connecticut Senator Thomas Dodd. Now, in the first few years of the 1960s, he'd made almost half a million dollars in campaign fundraiser contributions. Now, again, this is before the great inflation of the 1970s. So, I mean, half a million dollars is a lot of money now, but it was a really lot of money then. And he had done it primarily through tax-free gifts that had been given at testimonial dinners called Dodd Day Dinners. Well, and it, yeah, those were Dodd Days. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what? Actually, that's not a bad... We should refer to the pre-period as the Dodd Days. And people went to these. I mean, uh, Lyndon Johnson, who was vice president at the time, actually went to one of them. But he used the money not for his political campaigns, but for his personal debts and for his personal expenditures, including a mortgage on a 140-acre estate in North Stonington, Connecticut, in order to buy liquor for his Senate office. He would take his family to the West Virginia racetracks. He paid for a ghostwriter for one of his books. He even paid for airfare to take his dog from Connecticut to Washington, D.C., he was using that money for liquor for his Senate office, which pretty much takes you right back to like 1830, 1840, 1850, when during evening sessions, committee rooms would become bars and Congress would pay for the booze. They always had a way to refer to it that wasn't booze. You know, it was like overnight refreshments or special liquids or some goofy thing that they would call it, but so I hear overnight refreshments. I think donuts. And I'm like, I'm in. I'm so in. <laughs> but that says something right there. The idea of cigars and liquor. Exactly. It just says the only people who are going to come in here are my old friends. And the moment it changed, and that was not going to be an option any longer. And so the Ethics Committee holds a couple of rounds of hearings on Dodd. And the reason I think this is such a wonderful moment is because he attacks the committee and the Senate itself for paying the attention that they are to his finances. The Senate actually holds a, a full Senate trial of him in 1967. And he says, how many times do you want to hang me? Be done with it. Do away with me in the twilight of my life. And that will be the end of me. This idea that I deserve this. I'm a senator. You can't do this to me. This is how we do business. And yet, that too, though, long-standing, eternal, you can't charge me with this. I'm a senator. I, I'm a senator. I'm a congressman. I can do whatever I want. How dare you? And the ways in which people say that and have always said that out in the open Right? Yeah, I know there's a committee. I know there are rules. I know, I know, I know, I know. But I am who I am. But it didn't fly in the 1960s in the way that it would have in the 1860s. The Senate voted 92 to 5 to censure him for conduct which is contrary to accepted morals, derogates from the public trust expected of a senator, and tends to bring the Senate into dishonor and disrepute. Well, and I love that journalist William S. White had no use for the Senate Ethics Committee because he said that, and again, sort of an old throwback idea here, 
he says that basically this is a way to try and criminalize people's characters, and you you can't do that. He says, the new trait is a widespread credo that every problem dealing with human betterment can best be solved by passing resolutions or creating formulas which only the demonstrably wicked will thereafter refuse to follow. There is, in plain fact, no possible way to make any man, a U.S. senator, a garage mechanic, or even a minister of the cloth, an honorable and ethical man inside himself, save his own personal conscience and his own sense of taste and restraint. And again, this idea that, well, you know, you can't possibly legislate morality. And yet, of course, once you put up fences around behavior in the Senate and in the second, the House, in fact, yes, people did at least stop acting unethically in those particular ways. And as in so many other instances, if you draw a line in the sand, if you say beyond this you cannot do, if people choose to cross that line, they might be doing the same thing that they did before, but now they're going to know that they're crossing a line. That may inspire some to not do it, but it's a much better way to operate. It it sort of removes part, at least, of this, you can't attack me, you're just attacking me because you don't like me. It's like, well, no, actually, you crossed the line. We have now made a line, and that's significant in the working of Congress. Well, I'm going to throw that back at you and suggest that what it does is it creates a line that people who are not in Congress can look at and say, hold on, you can't do this. This is not okay. And one of the things we've been dealing with with ethics questions for the last long period is that the American people have often said, hey, wait a minute here, you can't do that. And that has really gotten ignored by the people who were supposed to enforce it, in part because those, uh, not in the committees, but the places that were supposed to enforce it were underfunded or whatever, but in part because those lines and what the committees do has not been as prominent as it was in the 1960s. And that hits on a major point about Congress, pretty much over time, it may not seem this way, but Congress more often is reactive than proactive. Very often it's reacting. And in this case, if you're drawing a line and the public knows in some way that there are lines now, if there is a response suggesting that people know and care about that line being drawn, there's more chance something will get acted on because Again, there's a public display, public opinion is at the heart of any kind of democratic government. So um, the House is going to create its own ethics committee shortly thereafter for similar reasons. Now, one of the other really important recent committees, and I'm sorry, I've been joking about my favorite being the Agriculture Committee, and I think maybe that's wrong because I think my favorite committees, at least right now, are the House and Senate Intelligence Committees. And they come from their own moment. They grow out of the post-Watergate examination of the intelligence community in the previous period and the excesses of that. One of the things that Watergate exposes is the degree to which that control in the White House of foreign affairs has corrupted the U.S. government. So the Senate Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence grew out of what was known as the Church Committee, formerly known as the Senate Select Committee to Study Governmental Operations with Respect to Intelligence Activities. It's clear what it does, but they're stringing together a lot of words there. Can I just say that's my real complaint about committees? Because it's like they find as many words as they possibly can. And if you're trying to write about them, you have to use the whole title. If I could introduce one frivolous thing to Congress, it would be that they would have really short titles for people like me. Well, I worked for a little while in the government and coming up with the nifty nickname for everything, the Rico Pico Wawa, you know, whatever the string (laughs) of letters was, and everyone would know, oh yeah, the blah blah committee, because of all these words. Now, the temporary committee led by Idaho Democratic Senator Frank Church began a 15-month investigation early in 1975, and they released a report in April of 1976, detailing abuses by the CIA, the FBI, and other intelligence agencies that included disclosures of illegal electronic surveillance, mail being opened, and assassination plots against foreign leaders. The Church Committee ultimately said that the committee reendorses the concept of vigorous Senate oversight 
to review the conduct of domestic security activities through a new permanent intelligence oversight committee. So on May 19, 1976, the Senate voted 72 to 22 in favor of creating a 15-member permanent committee with eight senators from the majority and seven senators from the minority. Opposition came entirely from Republicans and Southern Democrats, many of whom were particularly disturbed by the committee's legislative jurisdiction over the National Security Agency and the Defense Intelligence Agency. And again, worth pointing out that the opposition is coming from the Republicans. And of course, the Church Committee is looking at many of the things that the administration under Republican Richard Nixon did, and they kind of like those things. That's actually a really important moment because of the ways in which the Nixon administration had used foreign apparatus in its own interest, as well in what it considered to be the nation's interest. And I'm not just talking about in Southeast Asia, but also things that they engaged in with Pinochet, for example, in Chile. They create the committee, and the Democrats are in the majority, and they put Hawaiian Senator Daniel Inouye on it to serve as the first chair of the committee. And he pledged this. He said, I pledge that the security of this country will not be compromised by the work of this committee. I pledge that the CIA and other intelligence agencies will not violate the civil rights of any American. And he was really kind of a genius move to put him on this committee because he was, of course, representative of a minority himself. And he had also been very badly wounded in World War II. So the idea that he was somehow going to sell out America to the communists was not at that point, something that was going to fly. They're going to try and say that much later on about his career. As an example of someone who is supporting the larger meaning of this new committee, you have centrist Republican Illinois Senator Charles Percy, who said, the intelligence vote was indicative of a fresh attitude in the Senate, characterized by openness and aggressive participation. It has many facets. Committee chairmen, while still influential, no longer rule their committees with an iron hand nor are a majority of them any longer from a single region, the South. So he sees this as indicating or echoing a new spirit in the Senate, a new kind of open spirit in the Senate. And that's a really important point that I think echoes to the present, and that is in the middle of the 1970s with the dramatic changes in the Democratic Party because of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, for example, among other things, Senate committees in the early 20th century had been absolutely dominated by Southern Democrats. And we've talked about this here before, too, because they tended to stay in office for 6,000 years and because committee chairs were assigned according to seniority. So in the middle of the 70s, when they start to say, okay, you can have your whatever committee, but we're going to create some new committees that are bipartisan and trying to come to grips with post-World War II politics that's theoretically going to be more inclusive and that is going to be a much better reflection of a number of different regions in the country. This is actually a good thing, not a bad thing. And in contrast to that, people who liked the, the concentration of power in a small number of hands were furious about this. After the creation of the Senate Intelligence Committee, the House doesn't immediately create a permanent select committee. It sets up a temporary committee known as the Pike Committee because it's chaired by New York Democratic Representative Otis Pike, who wanted there to be a permanent intelligence committee. And when the Pike Committee starts looking at documents that are shared with it, some of them get leaked to Daniel Shore, who's a journalist, and they appear in the Village Voice. And when that happens, people like Henry Kissinger, who was Secretary of State under Nixon, say, oh, this is really bad news because people are going to start leaking intelligence documents in really partisan ways that are going to really create havoc for our national security and our domestic politics. That's a really interesting point. The House goes on actually to create its own permanent select intelligence committee, but the the leaking of intelligence documents is actually going to continue to be a really important feature of partisanship going forward. So what's interesting about that is, and we've basically seen this throughout this episode, we started out by saying that these committees are where the actual ground-level work takes place. I mentioned a little while back that in some ways, particularly the creation of ethics and intelligence committees shows Congress as a reactive institution. And we're certainly seeing in some ways how the membership 
putting people on committees, taking people off committees, can be a strong public statement of sorts, can be perhaps a statement of a kind of revenge or certainly a kind of indication of what the party in power is doing concerning the government and concerning the people who were in power before. So the question now is, what happens beyond that? Some people now are talking about this moment as a moment when particularly Republicans, in some way or another, they're being reactive against the Democrats who came before. In one sense, that means that Congress and the committees are echoing the state of the nation in an interesting way, because that's what the Republicans are doing generally. The bigger question really is, what are these committees going to do? And in a way, that's the point I'd like to end on today, because we've been talking about their membership and their function. We've been talking about how they've evolved over time. We've been talking about how we don't normally recognize what they do and that they're important. But in a way, what we forget to focus on and what we really should be focusing on right now is what these committees are going to do and how they're going to do it. We need to get past the moment that we're in, which is really still a membership moment, and really look up close and think about the work that they are doing and the work that they are not doing and what the impact of that will be. Our conversation continues for members of Cafe Insider. Heather and I take you behind the scenes of each episode in a special segment of Now and Then that we call Backstage. So join us backstage and get an inside look at the thoughts we're wrestling with as we prep for our weekly conversations. Head to cafe.com slash history to join. That's cafe.com slash history. That's it for this episode of Now and Then. If you like what we do, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. Your hosts are Joanne Freeman and Heather Cox Richardson. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The editorial producer is David Kurlander. The audio producer is Matthew Billy. The Now and Then theme music was composed by Nat Wiener. The cafe team is Adam Waller, David Tattashore, Sam Ozerstaten, Noah Azalai, and Jake Kaplan. Now and Then is presented by CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network. <laughs>